Yoga podcast. My name is Wendy Hummel. Today, you're going to hear a conversation that I had with Jack Harris several months ago. He's a retired law enforcement officer, licensed counselor, trained mediator, and professional trainer. Jack retired from the Tucson Police Department in 1994 at the rank of captain. I first met Jack at the COPS conference last year in Oklahoma City. I attended one of his sessions on retirement, but was unable to sit in on his anger class. Several of my colleagues and coworkers attended and said it was a really good class, so I reached out to Jack and invited him on the show. Anger has been something that I hadn't really given much conscious thought to. It's always been an emotion that I've associated as having a negative connotation. Outbursts or losing your temper, which probably has something to do with growing up in a home where anger was not well managed. Jack is a subject matter expert and offers training nationwide on the concept of anger, conflict, and recognizing what your triggers are and how that's associated with your anger. Jack offers some unique insight on managing anger and that if we understand how to align our expectations with reality, we aren't surprised at the outcome. He gives an example that kind of puts this into perspective, and it's something that I could really easily relate to. While you're preparing for court, let's say, due to a criminal case you worked if you're in law enforcement, if you, in your preparation phase, not only get ready to review the reports and talk about what your role was in the case, but you also prepare for knowing that the defense attorney will most likely be obnoxious and will try to personally attack you so that when it actually happens on the stand, you're not surprised. We don't necessarily lower our expectations, but we're aligning them to the reality of the situation. This principle can be applied to other situations as well. Treatment by those who we interact with in the course of our jobs, and sometimes members of our own agency. Realizing that there's this disconnect between the way we think life should be and the way that it is. The Stoics actually have a name for this, and it's an exercise they call premeditatio malorum. That means that the premeditation of the evils and the troubles that might lie ahead is something that you should go through. Scenario training, imagining what could go wrong to prepare for life's inevitable setbacks. We all know that life isn't fair all of the time, and by psychologically preparing ourselves, we align with reality. There's definitely a balance to strike here between this preparation and then allowing the pendulum to swing too far the other way or catastrophizing, and it all starts with awareness. Jack reminds us that when we're angry, Our brains aren't thinking logically. We're operating from the part of our brain that discounts reasoning, logic, and decision-making. Awareness of not just what triggers our anger, but as it's happening, noticing how it feels in our body and what can be done to prevent it. Jack mentions mindfulness and breathing as potential tools to offset this amygdala hijack. Jack and I agree, mindfulness and breathing are skills to be developed just like anything else that we're taught. Firearms, defense tactics, driving, report writing, etc. I recently read Brene Brown's newest book, Atlas of the Heart. It talks about the importance of naming our emotions. She conducted research in which 7,500 people were asked to identify all of the emotions that they could recognize as they were experiencing them. And the average, three, glad, sad, and mad. In her research, she found that when people talked about being angry, 
that stories of betrayal, fear, grief, injustice, shame, and vulnerability were also present. As a result, she is of the opinion that anger is a secondary or indicator emotion that can mask or make us unaware of all those other feelings that we can't name because we just don't have the language or words for them. How often have you heard someone say, or maybe you've said it yourself, I'm so pissed off, rather than I feel so betrayed and hurt. This really resonated with me. My mind was officially blown. This may not be news to some of you, but the more I learn to name things, the better I get at managing them. Anger is something that has been coming up a lot lately, both for myself and for others that I work with. This awareness has been helpful in my role as peer support, but really also in my personal relationships as well. Anger lives on a spectrum from mild irritation or annoyance to fury and rage. Brene calls anger a full contact emotion because it has the potential to take a physical and mental toll on our health due to excessive nervous system activation. I love one of Brene's analogies. She talks about the indicator light in our cars and how it tells us to pull over and check things out. Anger is a very effective emotional indicator light that tells us to pull over and check things out. Back to Jack's training. It's so rich in content, easily understandable, and potentially life-changing. He reminds us that situational awareness starts with self-awareness. One of my favorite things, one of my favorite quotes just means so much to me personally, because it's so true. And even the best information and training won't produce meaningful results unless you consistently apply it to everyday real life situations. That could require utilizing resources such as a culturally competent clinician to help you navigate these difficult emotions or experiences, peer support, or learning practices such as mindfulness, meditation, and breath work. All of these resources that I named, I have personally used and continue to use and have been really life-changing and helping me to manage these emotions. Now on to the show. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the show, Jack. Glad to have you here. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. So uh, before we hit record, we were just discussing a few things. And for the listeners, um, the way that I learned about you and your company and your teachings was uh, I recently went to the COPS conference in Oklahoma City. And you offered some really unique and interesting classes. I was able to sit in on your retirement class, but unable to go to your class about anger. But uh, some of the people from my agency that attended had a lot of really great things to say about it. So I wanted to have you on the show to let everyone know just about you have a company, uh, you're retired law enforcement, you're a licensed counselor. And so... I think I'll just start with having you introduce yourself and give a little bit about your background. And then I'd really love for you to, to talk a little bit about some of the things that you, you shared with everyone in Oklahoma when you were talking about the anger portion of your, of your teachings. Okay, great. Well, I grew up in the Chicago area and, um, mm-hmm. and started my law enforcement career with a small sheriff's department in uh, Macomb, Illinois. Um, and then as I finished college, I realized that I was really cold. <laughs> I want to get to the warm weather. So ultimately, I moved out to Tucson, uh, joined the Tucson Police Department, and spent the next uh, 20 years there. Most of my time there was operational things like patrol, canine, SWAT, uh, aviation. Um, and, then, and then I did a number of administrative things and ultimately finished up my career as the commander of a multi-agency narcotics task force. But along the way, <clears throat> after 
being involved in a shooting and, and some other incidents, I got really interested in the topic of trauma and what happens to people after a, uh, you know, a, a, a tragedy. And as a result of that, a very long story short is that um, I ended up getting to know our department psychologist. He and I became friends. And then because of my interest in that, I ended up going back to graduate school where I then did my graduate work in counseling psychology. Um, and today, when people ask me what it is that I do, it's all focused on a variety of things that are really aimed at helping keep good people good. Mm. And, and I know that sounds like a kind of a, maybe even a corny little topic, but if you think about it, is that in, in law enforcement and all sorts of public safety organizations, people work really hard to get on the job. They spend a lot of time and energy, and I always use this metaphor in training, is that if, if, we, if we went back to a basic academy class and you were an instructor in that class, and you walked in the room, people would be excited, they'd be enthusiastic, they'd be eager, they want to learn. <clears throat> and, and, if you, and if you ask somebody, how long are you going to stay on the job? What the new kids typically say is, I'm staying forever, I'm staying until retirement. And inside, I always kind of chuckle because they haven't figured out anything yet. But what I love about that concept is they're thrilled, they're excited. But now if you fast forward five years and you take that same group, and bring them to some mandatory in-service training. I'll ask people all the time, have they changed? And that's where you get all these little smirks and smiles. And I'll typically ask somebody <clears throat> um, who's, who's ever taught in-service training, what's it like now? And the descriptions are people are cranky. They're not happy. Some people are angry. They want to know how long, the, when are the breaks, what time's lunch, what time do we get out of here? And then you ask people, how long are you going to stay in the profession? And their answers change. And, and my question is, what happened? How, how did somebody go from being excited, enthusiastic to changing? And I think in the world of law enforcement, that's one of the areas that we don't really pay close attention to. Um, you know, people th think about the organization, how it changes and politics. And, you know, there's a lot of variables that, are, that, that go on. But, but the disconnect for me is that we do a really good job of teaching people how to technically and tactically do the job, survive on the street. But we watch people just really struggle with some of the other things. And, and one of the topics, the one that I was talking about at the uh, Concerns of Police Survivors uh, Conference was, this, it was the issue of anger mm -hmm. and how anger affects good people. And, and I'm becoming more and more convinced is that we, we can add up all the shootings, all, all, the, all the other situations that occur and I don't think it even touches the impact that anger is having on good law enforcement officers, both at work and away from work. And, and so that, that was kind of the genesis of the, uh, of the presentation is, is just taking a look at anger and, and is there something that we ought to be doing about it? And I think the answer is absolutely yes. And so uh, just to kind of go back to what you first said, I can personally relate to, to what you just said about teaching recruits as opposed to teaching people who are more seasoned on the job for at least five years or more. That's been my experience exactly to the T. As a matter of fact, I'm wondering if you're like sitting in one of my classes recently, because <laughs> that, that sounds really familiar. And, and in talking to other people, I, I'm pretty confident that they would have the same thing to say as well. But what, what do, and I know you'll probably get into this, but for an agency leader or somebody who's uh, in charge of bringing training and programming 
to an agency, what do you suggest to kind of prevent somebody from getting to that point or what, what can be done? Well, I think, I think part of it starts with understanding the journey where mm -hmm. someone goes from this excited, enthusiastic state, and then they get exposed to what I call the realities of the job. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the way I conceptualize it is there's a huge clash between expectations and reality. I think if, if you had three young police officers sitting around talking about what they think the job is going to be like, most seasoned officers would be sitting there just chuckling to themselves and shaking their heads saying, you, you don't have a clue what it's going to be like. And, and I think that disconnect becomes important because when our expectations get out of sync with reality, that's where all of us start to get frustrated. I mean, if you think about it, if you, if you think about an angry person that you know, and if you went out to lunch with that person today and just listen to them talk, I can almost guarantee you that they would be spending most of their time talking about things that they don't control. And the other thing that they'd be talking about is you'd hear things like, but it's not right, it's not fair, it's not the way it used to be, that's not the way it was when I got hired. And all of those things represent a big gap between that person's expectations and reality. And, and, and I, don't, I, I would never advocate to somebody that you need to lower your expectations because for someone who's passionate and committed, that sounds like a slap in the face. But I think there's a huge difference between lowering our expectations and realigning them to reality. And, and that becomes, I think that becomes part of the challenge and it's part of the unspoken conversation that we're not having in, in, uh, with organizations today and with people. Yeah, that sounds very familiar, uh, exactly the way you're describing that. So, right, that was going to be my next question is, what do you do? What do you do now with people that are in that place? How do you get them to realize that? Well, I think, I think that it starts with an understanding that anger, and, and, and I, 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 the, the word anger management, I mean, it's become a buzzword. I mean, everybody's, you, you know, everybody used it. We need to send this person to anger management. But, I mean, if you think about it, most of that, that compelled training that people have to go to, it's check the box. You know, and I don't care what profession is. We hear it in all sorts of different professions. Someone has gotten themselves in trouble. They're going to anger management school. They sit there for a day, two days, three days. They check the box as if it accomplishes something. But I conceptualize this as a skill. <clears throat> Just like driving, defensive tactics, or shooting. It's a skill that has to be acknowledged, practiced, and, and we have to get feedback about. Um, you know, one of the, you know, one of the uh, ex examples that I think of is, you know, just how we interact with the public. <clears throat> and, and one of the things I know and you know for a fact is that when our officers are out there making routine traffic stops or dealing with uh, burglaries or, or just the, the, all the calls they hand to, they are going to deal with angry people. And they're not necessarily angry at the officer, but they're angry. And the officer happens to be the tip of the iceberg that, that uh, it ignites the anger. And here's the question I have is, what are we teaching officers and what skills are we giving them? What proficiency are we, are we requiring to make them, to make them be able to um, have, a, have a better opportunity to interact with an angry person without it turning into to a, a full-blown uh, internet sensation? And so do you have any recommendations on what, how that, what that would look like as far as giving them the skills they need to be prepared for that? 
Well, I think I think one of the I think one of the skills is is um, we have to take some practical examples, and we have to make them part of training. I'll give you an example. I was doing a presentation for groups of chiefs of police, mm-hmm. and um, and this was a number of years ago when when the whole notion of of cameras and videotaping police was really at the forefront. Um, and when I say at the forefront, I mean in terms of um, getting a lot of attention. And and so I, there were two chiefs of police sitting in the front row. I pulled out my camera and I said, I want you to imagine you're handling a call. And and all of a sudden I'm standing across the street holding my camera up. And and we sat there and went back and forth. And I said, so what does the conversation look like? And it went like, what, what are you doing? I'm videotaping you. For what purpose? I like videotaping police. Well, who are you? I'm Jack. And, and it was very non-combative, non-argumentative. And, and within less than a couple of minutes, one of the chiefs of police stood up and said, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you, put that phone down. And I said, sir, I'm, I'm sorry, I have a constitutional right. And, he's, and next thing I know, he said, and he's, he pointed his finger at me and he was pissed in the classroom. And mm-hmm. he said, you don't put that phone right now. You're about to get your ass kicked. Wow. And, I, and I started laughing and, and I made the, I said to the chiefs, I said, now, wait a minute, you're the chiefs of police. You're setting the tone and the stage for your agency. And, and within a couple of minutes, in an absolutely fake scenario, look at the anger I was able to provoke without, without being angry myself. I, and I said, if, if I can get that kind of response from you in this classroom, what's happening to your officers on the street? And, and, and then my next question was, so what are we doing to try to help prepare our officers yeah. for those kinds of encounters? Let me share with you one other example. Doing this a few months after that, and I did the exact same scenario, and as I pulled out my camera, this was an officer now, and he, and he held up his camera, pointed it at me, and I said, what are you doing? He says, I'm videotaping you. And I said, what do you mean? He says, what kind of phone do you have? And I said, well, I have an iPhone, whatever it is. And he goes, well, I have the newer model. And he said, so I'm going to record you, you record me, and then we can get it in stereo and we can share them. And I started laughing and I said, where did you come up with that? And he said, because about six months ago, I thought I was going to lose my job. Oh, wow. He says, I got into a confrontation with somebody and and the guy pulled out his camera and he says, and I lost it. And and he says, and I grabbed him, I threw the phone down and and he says, driving home, all I could think about is I'm going to probably lose my job. How am I going to explain to my wife, to my kids, that I'm, I'm out of a job and maybe I'll even get arrested? And, and when I heard that story, you know, I, I kind of looked at him and I said, so where did this come from? He said, I made a decision that I was never going to allow somebody <clears throat> to put me in that position again. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and he said, so I had to learn some better ways. And my reaction inside was, what a tragedy that he has to figure out his own ways <clears throat> rather than it being part of the training. We would never do that with driving, with defensive tactics or guns. But when it comes to anger is that, is that we just watch, we continually watch um, different examples you know, surface and then we just shake our heads and thinking to ourselves, you know, the ultimate question, what the heck was he or she thinking? And every time you ask that question, the answer is the same. They weren't. They were mm-hmm. pissed off. They were reacting, and they were and they and they were and they were reacting to the anger, not responding to the situation. 
Right. And it sounds like a lot of what you're describing, and I'm, I'm assuming this might be part of what your training is, is, is first of all, starting with self-awareness and knowing and recognizing what your triggers are before it gets to the point where you're not able to manage those things and, and operating out of a, a different part of your brain, essentially. Absolutely. I, I use the phrase and I, I asked this in classes. I said, I said, what are your buttons? Mm -hmm. All of us have buttons. Yeah. We have, we have, I call them the zero to 60 buttons that make us go from zero to 60 in a flash. Mm -hmm. And I'll ask people, what are the things that other people do that ignite you? And I'm amazed at how many times people say, well, what do you mean? Well, what are the things that people say or do, whether it's a camera on the street, whether it's somebody flipping you off, whether it's somebody saying, why do I have to do that? Is that, but if we're not aware of our buttons, is that it always puts other people in a great position of power because, and, and I, and, you know, and we, we talk about this, we're talking about it now in the sense of law enforcement, but I'll typically ask an audience, how many of you have kids? You know, people raise their hands and I said, do you think if I was interviewing your kids and they were being honest that they could tell me what makes mom or dad crazy? And everybody starts laughing. And then my next question is, do you think they ever do it just for fun? Well, uh. think about that analogy on the street. You're out there as an officer, you're interacting with a group and let's not even call them a violent group. Let's just call them a, a bunch of knuckleheads and they've got their cameras out. But do you think that they are sitting there pushing buttons and pushing buttons, hoping to find the right one that makes you the net, the next internet sensation? Mm, that's a good point. That's a good analogy for people to, to understand that. So going back to your, your question about training, when do we incorporate these examples into training? When do we make them a practical part of role playing and scenario based training that people have to demonstrate proficiency? Because there's a big difference when it's skill-based. We don't just have a class and we don't, we don't have somebody come in and say, okay, we're going to talk about firearms today. Here's how you shoot a gun. Here's your gun. Good luck. Is that we, may, we, we have people go out on the range. We have them go out on the driving track. Is that, but as long as, as, long as this, this concept of anger and conflict is, is just a check-the-box training, I don't think we'll ever achieve meaningful results. And, and when you go around the country and you talk to officers who understand this, is that there's, two, there's a lot of examples where people, um, it's just scared the daylights out of them, and, and they had to figure it out on their own. There's, uh, there's other people that have brought those skills <clears throat> to the academy that they got somewhere else along the way. But, but we make an assumption in law enforcement many times that, <clears throat> that um, just giving them information is going to solve a skill problem. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, and I'm curious, and I don't know if you can answer this, but the example of the officer that you were just referencing in your example, what did he do when he had that reality check? Like, oh gosh, I, I need to do better. Did, did he share with you what he did to get to that point? Obviously he realized something needed to change. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I just want to emphasize as he relayed to me, he was terrified because he loved his job Yeah, <clears throat> and he honest to good uh, God thought that he was going to lose it or, or worse, get, get prosecuted. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but he said, I had to figure out what my go buttons were. Mm -hmm. I had to figure it out. And then he says, and I had to look for opportunities to practice doing something different. He did a bunch of, he did a bunch of reading, um, and, and just looked, looked at some of the literature that was out there. But he said, what I had to do is practice 
and I had to put myself in positions and start with a real conscious awareness of, of what his vulnerability was to these situations. And for all of us, they're different. Right. You know, all of us have different buttons. And so that's why you can't just make this blanket statement. Um, you know, we'll, you hear people say things like, well, don't, you know, don't let them get into your head. Don't, don't let them, don't let them trigger you. Well, that's great. But it doesn't mean anything if we're talking to a group of people that has a lot of different triggers. Yeah, you're, that's exactly what I was thinking as you were saying this. And, and I'm wondering, too, you know, if it's even, I mean, this sounds like it could be helpful to have people not just think about what your buttons are, what your triggers are, but give them time to think about it and write them down and really being honest about what those are. Because like you said, what might be one person's hot button has no bearing on another person or right. isn't, isn't one for another. So is that something that you typically have people do is like write this stuff down or just have them contemplate what those things might be? I, I like the idea of, of doing writing, writing exercises, not mm -hmm. from the standpoint of writing essays, but, but bullet points, what are the mm -hmm. things, but along that is that the next, the next column, if you will, is, um, is, is what I call the tape that plays in your head. What does that mean to you? Mm -hmm. You know, if you take somebody with a camera, what, you know, me, me holding up a camera and any police officer does not equal a reaction. If you think about it, holding up a camera means nothing until we add to it, what does that mean to you? And if it means to you, oh, there's just some knucklehead holding a camera, you won't have much of a reaction. But if all yeah. of a sudden, why is he videotaping me? Who is he to videotape me? I told, you know, I told him to stop and he continued to do it. He's not obeying me. And if that tape starts playing in our head, what it does is winds up the reaction. And, and, and oftentimes, you know, this is what accounts for how is it possible two police officers can be driving, can be standing um, out, out on the street and somebody drives by and flips them off and one person just shrugs their shoulders and the other one's ready to jump in their car and chase them. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not the flipping off. It's what it means to us. And, and, and when we can understand what the meaning is, that's the only thing that we really control. I mean, you know, think about this. If we tell our kids, you know, quit asking me why, what's the next question they're going to ask? Why? Why? Yeah. yeah. I mean, because, and if you tell somebody out on the street, stop doing this, they're going to continue to do it. You know, who are you to tell me? You know, but what's the, what's the essence here? Those are all things we have no control over. We don't control whether somebody asks us why. We don't control whether somebody flips you off, somebody holds a camera. But what we do control is what it means to us, the tape that plays in our head. And we can play with this. And, and when we can attach different meanings and we, can, and we can learn the skills how to attach different meanings to this, is that what we will change is our reaction. This, this is why nobody, I mean, not nobody, but... This is why people don't always react the same way in the same situations. And, and it's oftentimes we, we want to focus on the other person. But if we want to really take some uh, meaning out of this, we have to look at ourselves and say, what is it that makes it possible that allows me to react differently to the same stimulus under different circumstances? You know, why can a good friend of mine make a smart aleck comment to me and I laugh? And somebody else makes a comment to me and all of a sudden I'm going, why would he say that to me? Why would I get upset? You know, how do I get upset? And the answer is if my friend says it to me, 
that tape that's playing in my head might be, oh, that's just Jack. You know, he's always a knucklehead. He thinks he's funny. He's not, but he thinks he is. You know, but, it's, but I know he doesn't mean anything by it. But if somebody else says the exact same thing and that tape starts saying, why is he saying that to me? He doesn't know me. What, the, what gives him the right to say something like that? You know what? That's rude. That's inconsiderate. Look at the difference. My reaction will be, di will be absolutely different. And it has nothing to do with the comment. Right. And really, you know, what what I'm thinking of as you're explaining these two different scenarios is that we often attach this meaning, you know, even though just because we think something doesn't actually mean it's true. And maybe just getting ourselves to, to look at it from that point of view, it's like you said, the meaning that we're attaching to it has isn't necessarily mean that's actually what's going on. Right. One of my favorite bullet points that I use in, in a lot of my presentations is don't believe everything you think. Yeah, actually, I I have that same thing. Well, not anymore. I have it written. I wrote write things on my mirror uh -huh. uh, sometimes to just yeah. kind of remind myself whether it be a word or a quote. And I had that up there for quite a while. But but just think about it. Having mm -hmm. it in front of you when all of a sudden something's happened that's fired you up a little bit, and then mm -hmm. you look at it, it gives you pause. It puts a little break in between the fire in your gut and the thinking part of your brain. And you could say, is it possible that maybe... It doesn't mean that. And when we start entertaining that, mm -hmm. is that what it does is opens up the door for, for interpreting things differently. Now, I, I just want to make a point. You know, we're talking about this here uh, on the podcast. I'm not suggesting at all that in the middle of a tactical situation where somebody's about to get hurt, that right. I'm asking anybody to, to step back. Is that? But if we can develop the skills in non-threatening ways, then we can learn to apply them in more complex situations. And that becomes yeah. that becomes the key. Right. And my guess is that's because of we're we're creating new neural pathways in our brain. We're teaching ourselves exactly. these non-threatening situations to do this so that that's already created so that we can access that when we need it in the moment. Right. No, exactly. You know, I just want to go back to you you'd asked a question before in terms of how do we get a handle on it. I think uh you know, we use the word situational awareness all the time in law enforcement. And, and if you think about it, it's essential to officer safety. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to be aware of things that are going on. But what if we took the concept and, and expanded it to personal situational awareness? Mm -hmm. And what do I mean by that is, how do you know when you're getting frustrated, when you're getting angry, when you're losing patience, getting a little edgier? And if the answer is, when I explode, you're already behind the power curve. I'll often ask people, how many of you had a conversation at home with a family member or a friend that says, why are you so angry? And what's our typical answer? You know, no, I'm not. No, you are. Or, and, and, you know, and, and pretty soon that can lead to an argument. But the, the point that I want to make is if other people that are important in our life are telling us things or asking this question, why are you so impatient? Why are you this? Why are you that? Recognize an important component. Their situational awareness of you is better than yours. And mm -hmm. until our situational awareness improves, we're always going to be at a position of disadvantage and not being able to intervene early. Because this whole concept of, of anger management or doing things different is really predicated on being able to do it sooner rather than later. If, right. if you think about it is, if we could stay aware of our anger as it's happening, and then, and then staying aware of it as it escalates. And then the most important component, controlling our behavior and in, in a positive direction 
during times of escalating anger. You know, I, I never use um, video clips of, of, of some of the things that we've all seen on, te on television right. because I, because everybody knows, you know, it's, it's a, it's a 10 minute situation that's condensed to 12 seconds and the 12 seconds is only to, to prove a point, not of truth, but of, of, of just raising emotion. But I always ask people, be a student of human behavior and watch some of these videos and pay close attention and ask yourself this question. What's your first impression? Are you seeing an out of control racist person or are you seeing a pissed off cop? And, and I've asked that question, I can't tell you how many times over the years. And almost always, the answer is, it's a pissed off cop. Sure. And, I say, and I'll ask them, how do you know? And then you look at the muscles right here in their neck. You look at their facial expressions. You listen to the volume of the, of the, of the voice. You look at their fingers, how they're you know, waving and shaking in front of your face. And, and it's like, okay, so we, you know, we can identify it. It's easier to talk about it in terms of the, you know, the, what it, the, the point that it's trying to make on television. But my question is, what are we trying to do to pr try to prevent it? Let, let me give you one more example. I was doing a presentation for a group of internal affairs investigators. And um, I asked them, I said, I know you have no way of measuring this because you don't keep track of it. And so you don't have an answer. But I want you to tell me anecdotally, is it what percentage of the personnel complaints that you receive have some component of an angry, pissed off cop? Their answer, not mine, was in the 80, 85, 90%. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, so now you've been collecting this anecdotal data for all these years. I said, what are we doing to try to prevent it? And the, and the question was, well, wh what do you mean? I said, well, if you know that a vast majority of your citizen complaints have a component of an angry cop in it, what are we doing to try to prevent it? And the answer was, well, that's not our job. We, and I said, I understand that. I said, but whose job is it? Whose job is it when we become aware of a pattern that's leading to, to problems to fix it? I said, think about it from another perspective. If five people in your police department backed up and hit a telephone pole in the last two weeks, what would everybody in the department have to do? And they all started laughing. They said, they all have to go to backup training. And I said, but look at the number of complaints and the number of interactions that are happening that have a component of anger. And yet we just kind of shrug it off. And I think part of the answer is, is that it's not conceptualized as a skill and part an essential component of an officer's job. You know, and, and I can't help but keep coming back to and thinking as you're <clears throat> explaining this, uh, some of the things experientially that you can do with people or officers to to help train the skill into them. And I know you and I talked prior and I talked a little bit about the fact that I teach yoga, but but I think it's important to mention here, like with I, and I first learned this through yoga for first responders. And oftentimes when you say yoga, people immediately get turned off and think it's something that it's not. But one of the big things that we teach in that class that I really see fitting into what you're saying is, first of all, situational awareness starts with self-awareness and getting people during the class, because oftentimes when cops are first doing these classes, 
they're doing things they've never done before. They're in very uncomfortable situations. Their ego might be in play because I can't do this. This is awkward. And getting them to translate that feeling into, hey, you might feel like this again, and you're going to need to understand what's going on. And then the next thing is, is to understand how to control that. So, so that's kind of just kind of one of the things that's coming to mind as I hear you explaining, like this is one way that we can teach people how to do this in the moment. Although I'm sure there's a lot more that we can layer into that. So. No, I, I think you're right. And, and um, the same principle is, is that we don't want somebody in the middle of a tactical situation to get into a yoga pose, but what are the things that yoga does um, that helps pe prepare people? Because really what we're trying to do in anger is, is we're trying to control the, the, the fight or flight response and, and the hijacking of the brain that occurs. And the time to do that is not in the middle of the situation. Right. Is that what are the skills that we bring that maybe lo lower the reaction? Or, or give us give us pause. You know, I t as you mentioned earlier, um, I am a licensed counselor. I don't do a lot of counseling. That's not my mainstay. But but I you know my focus in that is an area of anger and I mean not anger but but trauma and things. But but we take a look at when I if I throw out things and I always talk about this the importance of mindfulness, mm -hmm. the importance yeah. of of um, of breathing. You know, and, and breathing. I mean, everybody talks about tactical breathing. And I'm a big proponent of it. But let's understand something. When all of a sudden I start to get under stress, is that, I mean, just again, be that student of human behavior. When you see somebody that starts to get under stress, whether it's a little kid, whether it's a cop, whether, whether it's a friend or a family member, pay attention to what's happening to their breathing. And, and the more the stress elevates, their breathing gets shallower and it gets more rapid. And what's happening inside, that's sending an alarm to the brain. It's saying, hey, I'm not getting enough air. And the, and, and the amygdala, the alarm is going off, and pretty soon it's saying, we got to get more air. And, and, and what's what happens is that it's typically faster and shallower. And the message keeps repeating itself. But what's the reason that we even talk about tactical breathing? Is it because if we can get the breath under control, it sends a whole new message to the brain, and it turns the alarm off and sends a calm message. I know that sounds like a lot of psychological mumbo-jumbo, is it? But that concept... Along the, con along the idea of, of yoga is really about bringing people into the present moment, isn't it? Mm -hmm. and, and it's, exactly. And, and the same thing with mindfulness. And, and if you look at some of the work that's being done in law enforcement agencies with incorporating mindfulness into it, this isn't just to just get on the latest bandwagon, is that the results are, is that if I can stay present in the moment and not get, and, and, and as you said, not let my ego and pride get in the way, which becomes just an absolutely counterproductive um, uh, piece to this is if I if I can stay in the moment I can be I can better deal with the situation, um, and and again that's you know it's something it's 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 what I call woo woo thinking but it's real it's grounded in science it's not touchy feely there's hardcore science that says this stuff makes a difference. So I'm so happy to hear you say all of that because. You know, those are all everything that you just described and you, you called it psychological mumbo jumbo, which it's to totally not. That's all part of what we teach in those classes is is putting all that together. It's evidence based, like you said, because I think um, I think it's different now than it was five years ago. Saying the words yoga, meditation, mindfulness, any of those right. things used to definitely be a lot more off putting 
than they are now. I think it is becoming more mainstream, but I, I think what the importance of what you're saying is you still have to frame it and present it to our audience in that way. This is why we're doing this. This is why it works. Cause if you just say, Hey, come to yoga that, or Hey, come, come, come be more mindful that that's not going to cut it. <laughs> right. And, and I think that, I think that ties exactly into what we were just talking about a minute ago. The checkbox training is go to yoga, go to mindfulness. Yeah. But if you incorporate it into some discussion and, mm -hmm. and let people see the value and, and, and help people understand how it's connected to the bigger picture, then it then then it's because yoga and, and mindfulness and breathing, it's a skill. Right. It, it's I mean, we've all breathed for as long as we've been alive, but doing it in a purposeful way uh, takes practice. And I always say to people, I give people a little homework assignment, you know, with with some, uh, you know, they sometimes they call it four square breathing. There's a lot of different names to it. Mm -hmm. um, but the principle of but I'll give people a homework assignment and I'll say, look, next time you're frustrated, don't wait till you're angry. But next time you're frustrated, I want you to try this exercise. I want you to take four, four breaths in or four second breathe in through your nose, hold it for four. Breathe out for four through your mouth and hold it for four and just do that six times. And then you make your own decision. Do you notice anything different? The feedback that I get and what I know is typically the answer is that doing that little exercise that takes not but a couple of minutes produces a sense of calm. It takes the edge off. And, 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 I, point, and I point that out to people is that I'm not here to sell you anything or convince you of anything. Is it, but you've got to ask yourself a question. You know, what price are you willing to pay for all this stuff? You know, are you willing to continue to get pulled into the trap? You know, it's interesting. You look around a police department and, and you know that there are officers that, that um, you know, if they came on the radio, if you were just clearing a call and, the, and they came on the radio and said, I'm en route ETA five minutes, you would just cringe because you know I have four minutes to get out of there. Mm -hmm. Because they have, the, they have the capacity to turn a simple situation into a nightmare. Um, but the, the, but the question is, instead of just who the person is, what it is that they do, how do, how do people escalate things? How do people deescalate things? We can all look at officers on the department that we know that have this, uh, seem to be an amazing capacity to go into volatile situations and create calm, you know, and, 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 and create this, this sense of, um, um, yeah, as much as I hate the buzzwords. I think it's real. I think it's real important. The de-escalation. I mean, come on. This is not a new concept. We've been doing de-escalation for many years. We didn't right. put a name to it. I don't think we added any value to it. But now it's the latest trend. But we've all known people for as long as we've been in law enforcement that have had the ability to walk into situations and did some things that created a de-escalation, that created a sense of calm. Right. And that was just something that was just natural for them to be exactly. able to do that. And obviously that's not for everyone. Not everybody has that skill. But here's my question. What if we said in, if you're going to work in law enforcement, that everybody doesn't have to be the expert at it like others are, but everybody mm -hmm. has to have a, have a basic set of skills that you can't be a police officer unless is that you can demonstrate and we'll teach you, we'll teach you those skills, but you have to be able to demonstrate it because one of the things that we expect our officers to do is have the ability to, in the use of force before they get into the official use of force,
to be able to use ver uh, communication things, be able to manage their own emotions so that they don't exacerbate the situation. Um, and, and again, you could use the same example with firearms. People enter law enforcement with all sorts of firearms experience. But as a as a former law as a form uh, as a former um, firearms instructor, we started with the premise: we're going to teach you everything, because we don't know what your background experience. But in order to graduate, you to you had to have a basic level of competence, and if you didn't get it, you couldn't graduate from the academy. And yet, there were some people that became expert marksmen, and there's some people that that passed the qualifications. But the qualifications were a basic. Um, level of proficiency. Yeah. And, and I guess like the million dollar question, and I don't even know if you can answer this is cause you, you kind of, you said this in the very beginning, it's, it's how do you get people who are in that place of, you know, there, there's a disconnect between what their expectations are in reality and they're in, and they're stuck and they can't really see that. I guess that's, that's what I'm asking or maybe yeah. you have some insight on how you can identify somebody you can clearly see is stuck and can't see what everyone else is seeing um do you have well, any suggestions yeah i think the, i think the first thing is is that the worst time to try to intervene and try to teach somebody is when they are 10 on a 10 point scale sure because at that point their brain's not thinking is that but if we can if we can back it off a little bit um you know i think supervisors so We've been talking so far about what people can do, but I think the team, whether it's supervisors, whether it's coworkers, play a big role in, in all this stuff. And so in answer to your question, in my ideal world, is that after an incident, um, when somebody identified it, and we'll just pick on supervisors for a minute, is that uh, let's say so something erupted is that not that moment I mean, and i think we all make a mistake sometimes we do it with our kids in the middle of an argument we try we try to get logical completion to this thing mm -hmm. but but what if sometime afterwards when emotions have a chance to subside are we sitting down with people and we talking about it not so much of in your face look what you did but i i noticed this i watched this here's what's happening this is what it, this is what i'm concerned about this is going to cause you some problems and, 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 and then maybe that supervisor doesn't have the skills to teach it, but are there people in the academy, in the department is that, are, are, that, that, that can teach them new skills? I mean, we could, we could spend hours talking about ways to do this, but I think it starts with that awareness. And, and I think that part of it is, I mean, one of the things that I'll typically do with people is that if I'm talking to them, I have a sheet that I use and, mm -hmm. and it says, what's the event that happened? What's the tape that plays in your head? And what was the reaction? And that's, that's the pretty simple part. Because, the, every, you know, you can, you can fill in those boxes. But then the next two columns are, is that what would you like the outcome to be? What would you have rather this incident look like? Mm. You know, and maybe the answer is, I, I wish I wouldn't have screamed. I wish I wouldn't have threatened the person. Um, it, you know, there could be a lot of different things. But then the last column, which is the hardest column for people to sort through, is what's the tape that would have to play in your head that would allow you to have a different reaction? And that's the hardest part because immediately people think, well, they, but they shouldn't have done that. He, he, shouldn't have, he shouldn't have screamed at me. And my answer to that is you're right. They shouldn't have screamed. But here's reality. You work for a police department. You're interacting with people. 
and people are going to scream at you whether they think whether you think they're not but the problem isn't the screaming but when we take the screaming personally when we attach some meaning to it when we attach disrespect when our pride and ego gets in the way that screaming can can turn into a to a, a, a confrontation but yet at the same token we know people that are out there on the street they get yelled at and they find a way to find the humor in it and I don't mean laugh in the person's face but inside, they'll, they may be sitting there thinking to themselves, you know, well, I wonder how long this is going to go on. Hey, this guy's got a pretty loud voice. I didn't know anybody could scream this loud. And, and I'm not trying to minimize anything. What I'm trying to do is take the sting out of it. So let me give you a practical example where many police officers are experts at this. How many police officers actually like to testify in court with an obnoxious defense attorney? And when Zero. I ask, yeah, well, but, I, but here's what I'll say to you. There's a lot of people that find the humor in this, mm-hmm. but, and, and you talk to somebody after, you know, you say, well, if, if, if you actually enjoy testifying or find the humor in it, is that I always ask this question. So how do you expect an obnoxious defense attorney to act? And they say, well, obnoxious. And I'll say, well, how many times have they disappointed you? Never. And I say, but when you go to court, you prepare for the case. But at the same token, you're also thinking to yourself, well, I wonder what stupid tricks he's going to play. I wonder how she's going to try to get me off track. I want, and, and what are you doing unconscious or consciously? You're, you're trying to line your expectations with reality. But the other part of it is, is that, is that when all of a sudden the attorney, is in, you know for a fact that if an attorney can't attack the facts, he or she's going to attack you. And you say, well, why would they do that? because they want to cloud the issues. If I can get it personal, if I'm an attorney cross-examining you, and if I can get you angry, if I can get you combative, if I can get you argumentative, I'll use that in front of the jury to, point, to, to make a point that perhaps is irrelevant to the case. But the other side to it is, is that if I can get you angry on a witness stand, I can promise you that there's a greater chance that you will contradict something you said previously or you'll contradict something that you wrote in your report. Because when we're angry, our brains are not thinking logically. And that's where that what was I thinking comes in. But, but the flip side is, I'll ask officers this all the time. How many of you get off a witness stand with an obnoxious defense attorney, and afterwards they're nice to you? You know, they're friendly. Because in most cases, it's not personal. Right. But what are they trying to do? They're trying to get their client off. And if they, and, but, what, but what allows somebody to find the humor in an obnoxious defense attorney versus one that gets off the witness stand and their day is ruined? And there's no shortage of those either. Right. Well, and what you're saying really like resonates. It clicks with me because I spent a lot. I mean, most of my career, I was a detective and I spent a lot of time testifying. And for the most part, I, uh, I think that I was successful because I actually really enjoyed testifying. And uh, because I learned the hard way, I always did what you just said. And I didn't even really realize it is that I always anticipated worst case scenario, what they would ask me or do. And, um, and so I almost, I don't know if this is, this is good or not, but I almost welcomed it. Like I was ready for it. Right. Just as much as I was ready to talk about what I did or what my role was in that investigation, I was ready for whatever personal things might happen because typically, um, yeah, it didn't always happen, but, 
but you're right. Like one or two times somebody might try to press my buttons. I find that when that doesn't work, then they move on and they don't continue to do that. Right. Because, and human nature is such, if the buttons don't work, then we're going to move on to something else. Yeah. But, but what you were just describing is before you went into court is that you had, whether you put this label to it or not, your expectations were pretty clear is that if the attorney couldn't attack the facts, they were going to try to go after you mm -hmm. and you prepared for it. And we could argue all day long. It's not right. It's not fair. It shouldn't sure. happen, but that is what happens. And, and, and the disconnect between the way life should be and the way that it is, is, is a, is a big, is a big gap. And again, I go back to, I'm not asking people to lower their expectations, mm -hmm. just work towards getting them in line with reality. And, and I want to share, if I may, an, another aspect of this. Please do. Yeah. Is that we as a team, if we work together as a squad and we saw something that was dangerous that I was about to walk into, instantly somebody else would grab me. They'd say gun. They'd, they'd warn because, because we're kind of wired that way is that when there's a tactical threat, we don't even think about it. But what happens when somebody's losing their cool? What happens when you, when you're, when somebody's out there and you see some other officer starting to just start to just get angry? What role do we play in preventing it? And I always go back to when I was a young police officer, I had this crusty old sergeant. He wasn't any touchy feely guy by any stretch of the imagination. But I remember an incident, it was a chase. We finally get the car stopped. And, and, I, and I, I just, I, as best that I can remember, when I finally got up to the car, I was pissed. And as I grabbed the guy out of the car, I remember this old crusty sergeant coming up and just tapping me on the shoulder. And he says, I've got this. Mm -hmm. and, I said, and he says, I've got it. He's not worth it. And that little incident, which happened many, many years ago, just sticks in my mind because he saw something that I didn't. He saw a, a, a level of anger in me that I wasn't aware of because I was in the middle of it. And what did he do? He intervened. Right. He broke the cycle because what if you think about that situation, the way my brain was working and the way his brain was working were two different things. He was in the logic mode. I was in the emotional mode. And, and he made a difference. And can we do that for each other? I think absolutely. Is that yeah. we, is that why aren't we doing that? And, and go back to training. Are we doing this in training? Are we making this part of real life scenario, role play simulations? Is that where the expectation is? Somebody steps in and, and it isn't to prevent embarrassment for the department. I, that's not my focus here. My focus is, is that let's help prevent each, let's, Let's work as a team and help help um, prevent some simple situations from turning bad. And if I see something that's a physical threat, I won't hesitate to intervene. What if we could incorporate, if I see something that's a potential threat in the topic that we're talking about, we're going to intervene. Do we give each other permission to do it? Do we make it part of the conversation? Do at squad meetings, do we talk about this? Hey, if I see something... You know, we're, we're going to get involved because I'm not going to let you go down a path that's going to cause you problems. And I don't think that's really an integral part of today's conversation. And I think it should be, especially in light of everything that's going on out there in the streets these days. Yeah, that's what, what was coming to mind when you were describing all of that. I think, unfortunately, because of some things that we've seen in the media and some incidents across the nation, I 
I do think that more agencies are becoming aware of this, but I still think there's a, a lack of, okay, now what? We know we need to do this, but how do, how do we do it? And I guess that's partially where, where you come in with, with a lot of your training. I'm guessing you go to a lot of agencies and give them that this is how you can do it. Um, you know, I, I, I don't do as much of that other than do like what the, the cops presentations when mm-hmm. I, at the, at the presentation for that conference, it was really about bringing some things to the forefront, yeah. giving you some things to think about, you know, and I always talk about, you know, it's because sometimes if you just say to somebody anger management, it just, mm-hmm. it, it automatically turns them off. But I, but I think of this in terms of the power of anger. You know, I, I use this example. I mean, if I was really angry and we were together in the same city right now, and if I was really angry and I had to drive a hundred miles, um, would you jump in the car with me while I drove? You know, most people go, oh, I don't want to get in the car with you like that. Uh, because we realize if you're, if you're angry, your head's not in the game. I'll say to people, you know, if we were part of a high-risk entry team, a SWAT team, and I was really angry because I didn't get the job that I wanted and somebody else got it and I'm really disappointed and angry, do you want me on your high-risk team? They say, no, no, your head's not in the game. There's, you know, and so part of it is, is looking at this thing in terms of the power of anger whether it's, whether it's accidents, whether it's risk-taking, you know, whether it's heart and health issues. I'm not a cardiologist, mm-hmm. is it? But, I, but you talk to some cardiologists and they'll tell you anger and, and cardiac problems can go hand in hand. You know, we look at decision-making, not a topic for today, but decision-making, while it's easy to talk about um, bad decisions, my question is how is it possible under the wrong circumstance Mm-hmm. Somebody could make in a split second a horrible, sometimes career-ending decision. And think about the role of anger. I mean, here's the little acid test for anybody that's listening today. Have you ever found yourself in a position where you've been really angry? you just had it right up to here. And, it, and at the height of this, you said or did something that at that moment felt perfectly good. And then about 12 seconds later, the other part of your brain was going, oh, crap, what was I thinking? And the answer is you weren't thinking. Right. You were reacting to the anger. And, and putting, putting some distance in between the two is it, can we learn to do this before we have to do it with high-risk situations? So, and then the other aspect of anger is what's the impact on families and people closest to us? Right. Um, and so I think when we talk about the topic of anger management, it's not just about the latest buzzword. It's not just about the videos that we're seeing. Is that this is a real life issue that many good men and women are are paying way too big of a price for. And and if the department's not going to do something different about it, and my message to them when I'm talking at a lot of these conferences, look, if 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 the system's not going to fix it, then then we need to pay attention to it. If I'm talk if I'm talking to administrators, then my question is. Is that isn't this something that an organization should be focusing on? Because this is what's getting your officers in a jam. This is what's looking bad in the press. And as a chief of police, is that this is the stuff that's getting chiefs of police fired. And so there's a lot of reasons from a lot of different perspectives. But ultimately, I think it comes back to this is a piece of helping keep good people good. Give them the skills and the tools they need to be able to do their job well just like we do with some of the hard skills and tools. Yeah, you're, you're, I, agree, I couldn't agree more. I mean, organizationally, 
there's a responsibility, but you have a personal responsibility to yourself and to your family, obviously, to, to do these things if that isn't something that your agency offers. Right, exactly. And that was my message at the, at the uh, COPS conference because my audience was very diverse. And mm-hmm. so it was, it was you know, it's, it's kind of like um, personal wellness and resilience and all the topics that we talk about, important for sure. But if we wait for the department to make it better, we're going to be waiting a long time. If we, if we wait for the department to make our family life better, um, it's not their job. It's not their responsibility. And, and, and part of this, I mean, my message is, is that we have, to, we have to take some personal accountability and, and, and start doing things in spite of what the system may, may be doing for us. Yeah, and I have one last thing, and, and yeah. I think I, I already, I think I assume I know how you're going to answer this, and it's probably not much different than anything we've already talked about so far. But for anybody who's listening, who, you know, we've talked a lot about anger as far as the community and giving a lot of examples of community. But what about for people that are feeling that way because of internal organizational blame or anger towards leadership or the way things are internally, um, because it seems like that's a trend across the nation where people are are feeling very angry towards the people that run their organization, wherever that might be. I, and I think that's that historically has been a theme for, mm-hmm. for, for many years. Um, you know, when I ask people, you know, what are the things that we get angry about? Um, most the organizational politics, bureaucracy come right to the top. But then I go back to, I think, which, which is really the heart and soul to this is, is having some clear understanding of, of what we do control and what we don't control. And, and I use the, I use the, the, uh, uh, the, the phrase is that if we don't anger, if we don't manage our own anger and frustration and emotions, is that the things that annoy us will start managing us and those important to us. And then ultimately, no one is more responsible for taking care of you than you are. You know, we go back to your question about, about the organizational things. Um, so I want to make two, two points. One of them is look at people within an organization that seem to be able to weather that storm. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't bother them as much. You know, a chief a sheriff comes out with a new decision, a new policy, and they just shrug their shoulders and they say, well, I may not agree with it, but I don't have time to think about it because I'm going to go to work and I like working and I'm going to go out and work. And then you look at somebody else, that same policy comes out and they're all wrapped up and they're, who are they talking to? Who are they expressing their anger with? Is it people that agree with them? And so now they spend their whole day talking about how wrong it is, how it's not right. And, and I'm not asking people to give up and be milk toast. But just realize is that you work within a system is that there'll always be a bureaucracy and a policy and there'll always be something different. There'll always be somebody making decisions is that the, the, our question becomes is how, how do we weather that storm? And again, part of it is what we're what we're talking about here. But here's another analogy. Look at these new kids in the academy. When they get out. Somebody's making policy decisions. Mm-hmm. So there's bureaucracy. There's politics. And it doesn't seem to bother them as much. And then, and, and, then, and then you look down the road and you watch somebody, that same person, now the slightest little thing. You know, who are they to make that decision? Look, I was a commander for, and I realized is that sometimes I'd make decisions and people get angry about it. I mean, I tried my best sometimes to explain what the basis for it was. 
mm-hmm. but that that was no guarantee because there were other there were people that just didn't like it. But at the same token, all of us work in an environment is that somebody else is going to make a decision. And, and, and I'll hear people say, well, then fine, I'm going to leave this agency and I'm going to another one. And I'll say, great, here's what you're going to experience, the honeymoon period. Everything's going to be wonderful. And then about six months later is that you'll realize that there's still somebody making policies and decisions. And so it goes back to if you can't change the situation, recognize it, own it, and change the way it affects you. That's the only choice that we have because there's nobody that's going to change the bureaucracy and the policy of their organization. But I think it's, I think it's critical that we, that we learn how to, how to change the way it affects us, because if not, we're paying the price. Yeah. And everything you're saying is so important. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to lay all of that out for everybody, because I do, I, I think it's, something that everybody needs to hear, Um, not just people who are in law enforcement, but people who are all public safety family members, because like you said, I mean, really it starts with knowing that you can't control what goes on except for the way that you respond. And I think that's so difficult, especially for people in our line of work is because we really a lot of times like to control everything. And that's the last thing that we can do. It's extremely difficult. It's extremely difficult, but if we don't think about it and we don't put our efforts there, then what we could do is we get consumed by the other stuff. And I'm glad you mentioned family because this stuff all plays a big impact on family. You know, if it's your weekend and your time away, my argument is you ought to be doing fun things with your family that you enjoy doing, not complaining about how terrible the department is because it's bad enough that you get paid to complain about it. But when you're bringing it home and letting it live rent free in your head, you're paying a really um, monumental price for that. Yeah, and that's a really another really good point that you just made. L- living rent free in your head—that's another good one that I I like. I forgot about that one. Yeah. <laughs> so, is there? I want to be respectful of your time. We've been we've been talking for about an hour. Uh, so, before we we wrap up, is there anything else that? you want people to know who might be listening on this topic that we didn't cover before we, before we sign off? Yeah, I, I would, I would leave you with um, just a reminder about the power of ego and pride. And I'm just convinced if we could get that out of the equation, we could make some monumental changes very quickly. And again, I realize that what I'm talking about is simple conversation, but developing the skills and practice requires work like everything else. But the other thing, here's a simple little tool uh, that I always like to leave, you know, that I'd leave you with, is that the next time you find yourself in a conversation where somebody is, you know, talking differently than you are or has a different opinion or is trying to push your buttons, is that um, recognize it for what it is and realize that conflicting views present us with an opportunity to be curious. Be interested and curious. And what do I mean by that? First of all, I don't want you to practice this with the most complex thing, but try this with some simple examples. Is it next time you're dealing with somebody that's angry, instead of instead of the gut question of why are you so angry, try this. Hey, I see you're pretty annoyed. What's happening right now? What did I say? Ask what and how questions instead of why questions. Try this at home with little things, and you make a decision for yourself if whether or not this creates different results. I'll give you a little backstory. When you ask a why question, it just it just has this unique way of triggering emotions 
You know, what do you mean why? And to get defensive. But when you ask a what question or a, or a how question, mm-hmm. it forces people to think. If, I were, if we were talking right now and I said, I, I can see you're pretty annoyed with me. What just happened? What did I say? It causes the brain to stop and pause and think from the front part. And when we can get people answering what and how questions, it sends another message to the other part of the brain that starts to create a calm. The other thing, it, it, it uh, demonstrates respect. And you know, in the world that we live in today, you know, we, we you know, out on the street, and obviously I've been out on the street in a long time, is that, but I, I don't think there's anybody out there, internally or externally, that doesn't want to be treated with respect. And the simplest technique that I know is ask what or how. I say this to supervisors all the time. Instead of j- jumping and, and getting in, into the issue, take a deep breath and say, so what happened? What made you think, decide to go this way? How did you think that was a good idea? And see if you can provoke a conversation. Be curious, be interested, and see if you can develop some understanding. Because it sends a strong message to the other person that I'm interested, I'm paying attention. That doesn't mean that you're going to agree with them. But before you decide, and and as I say this to parents, it's the same thing. You want to try a real simple example? Next time one of your kids does a knucklehead thing, instead of telling them what they should have done, take a deep breath wait a couple minutes and say, hey, I see you came home late again tonight. What, what happened? What prompted you to do it? And, 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 if, and if you can control your, your in, uh, in natural tendency to want to be defensive and just be curious, you'll, you'll see the conversation changes. And I think this is one of the skills that we can use within, within the job that we do that. What and, what and how questions, not why. That's really good advice. And you are a wealth of information. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. So if, uh, if anybody who's listening wants to find a way to contact you, reach out to you, whether they have a question or maybe they want to bring you to their organization, how would they go about doing that? Uh, the easiest way would you send me an email at jack at jackharris.org. Okay. All right. Great. Well, thank you again, sir. I have really appreciated talking to you. <clears throat> really, I could talk to you for another hour, and, and maybe I'll be in touch. <laughs> I'd love to do it. I'd love to do it. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Down the 